from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 114. I'm actually really excited for today's show. Um, we have one of the, the nation's premier orthopedic surgeons and sports medicine consultants on. Um, he's a guy I've been really fortunate to chat with and uh, collaborate with on a few different patients over the years, and has actually taught me a lot just in those conversations and those collaborative efforts. Um, really, really good insights, not just with respect to the shoulder, which we're gonna focus on today, but also as a, a pioneer in the, the world of elbow surgeries and evaluations. So someone that's really pushed baseball sports medicine forward, and we're really lucky to have him uh, share some of his wisdom on this today. If you're a baseball pitcher, you know that keeping your arm healthy is essential. But with high training volumes on top of participation in games, that's not always easy. Overuse is a significant problem for players at every level of competition right now. Certainly, we see elbow and shoulder injuries as some of the most common overuse injuries in baseball. At the professional level, an ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow injury can result in an average of 17.2 months out of competition. For youth players, overuse is also a predominant injury mechanism of injury. If you miss out on that much time, you're also missing out on a lot of development. So really, at the end of the day, there are three ways we can combat overuse. First, you can reduce workload. And certainly, there have been a lot of research studies out there on pitch counts. Second, and the theme of this podcast, is that you can build a significant level of fitness to prepare yourself. However, a third key approach that's often overlooked is that you can work to improve your recovery so that you can safely display the fitness that you've built day in and day out. And that's really where Mark Pro is an effective tool. Some athletes will even use it to warm up their arms before they throw. Mark Pro is a cutting edge EMS device that uses patented technology to create non-fatiguing muscle activation. And this is what sets it apart from other recovery tools. Muscle activation with MarkPro facilitates each stage of the body's natural recovery process, similar to active recovery, but without the extra effort and muscular fatigue. Athletes can use it for as long as they need to ensure a more full and quick recovery between training or games. With its portability and ease of use, players can use MarkPro while traveling between games or while relaxing at home. We even have players that use it all the time on team flights to help them bounce back. We have plenty of pro athletes that use this, and players from every Major League Baseball team use it. Put Mark Pro to the test for yourself and take advantage of the great deal they have set up for our listeners through the end of May. Just head to markpro.com and use promo code CRESSY at checkout for 20% off your order. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com, and use the promo code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout to get 20% off your order through the end of May. Today's guest is an attending orthopedic surgeon and co-chief emeritus of the Hospital for Special Surgery Sports Medicine Institute in New York City. He's also the founding medical director of HSS in West Palm Beach, Florida, where he also sees patients. He's the medical director for the New York Mets and a medical consultant for the NBA. He previously served as the North American medical director for the Association of Tennis Professionals, which sponsors the Men's Professional Tennis Tour, and was also the former team physician for the U.S. Davis Cup tennis team. He's a professor of surgery and clinical orthopedics at the Weill Cornell Medical College and author of over 100 articles and book chapters on problems of the shoulder, elbow, and knee. He earned his medical degree at Weill Cornell Medical College and performed his residencies at the Hospital for Special Surgery and New York Presbyterian Hospital, followed by a fellowship at HSS. Please welcome to the show, Dr. David Altchek. 
Dr. Alchik, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Eric. Happy to be here. Although um, I'd rather be in Florida with you than uh, <laughs> here in New York where it's 20 degrees. But I was, anyway. <laughs> I was going to say, it's um, the grass is always green on the other side. I feel like every time somebody from the north comes down here these days, we get a cold front. So be careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, okay. But I learn so much every time we, we chat. We've we've shared a number of patients and athletes in common over the years. And actually, right before I, I left the facility, I was looking around and uh, doing like a, a head count of how many elbows you had operated on or second opinions you delivered on. So you you have an amazing sample size to draw from. So I'm excited to to pick your brain on a a big can of worms and to your shoulder okay. pain. So you ready to okay. tackle this? <laughs> uh, no, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Uh, obviously, anterior shoulder pain, probably along with with medial elbow discomfort, is going to be one of your most common reasons an over overhead athlete you know presents for sports medicine assistance. I think all too often we hear this blanket biceps tendonitis diagnosis that's been you know thrown around somewhat haphazardly, maybe in in both the lay and the sports medicine populations over the years. Um, it goes without saying that true evaluation of this, this anterior shoulder discomfort is you know, much more complex with a lot of differential diagnoses. So I guess I'm curious, clinically, where, where do you begin when someone comes in with this kind of presentation? Well, you know, obviously the history matters. How this start? You know, as we both know, almost, you know, 90% of the time it's insidious. It's rare, rarely acute, but it can happen acutely. And that usually is not biceps tendonitis. Mm -hmm. Location of pain obviously matters a lot, particularly if you're considering biceps tendonitis because it hurts only in one very discrete area, you know, in that bicepital groove. I'm not sure that I'm that confident in the the physical exam of the biceps groove as some other of my colleagues are. Um, because that area is tender when you mash on it, when someone mashes on me there, it hurts. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you, you know, you have to do it. So the bottom line is you have to take a history. You have to do a thorough physical examination. You're, what are you looking for? You're looking for instability, like excessive laxity that we would call instability. We're looking for unusual weakness, suggestive of, you know, cuff insufficiency or some other kind of muscle tendon problem. Uh, you're as you're also, I don't know why this is, but I'm seeing like literally 10 times as much thoracic outlet mm -hmm. uh, in 2021, 2022 uh, than I saw in 2010. And whether that's due to training, i.e., weighted balls, which I don't want to get off on my biases, but I'm, you know, a little biased that you take, you know, some people who aren't heavily muscled uh, and you overload the system with those and possibly induce a thoracic outlet type uh, type syndrome. And then, of course, you have the other structures there. You have, uh, you know, the muscle tendon junction, the subscapularis is at risk. And then, you know, deeper in, you know, you, obviously we, everything used to be the labrum and now people are shying away from talking about it, but the labrum could still be a problem, whether it's a superior labrum or, you know, occasionally we've seen pictures like Pineda 
throw one pitch and tear off his anterior inferior labrum looking like he got he was a linebacker for the uh you know the rams tackling someone so there's just a wide array of things and you just got to at the beginning you've got to have an open mind you got to consider everything and then see where your history physical and imaging takes you so you can cone it down and start to specify in terms of biceps i don't hesitate to use diagnostic injections under ultrasound mm -hmm. because I think that can be very, very uh, diagnostic. Interesting. Do you, I mean, I guess one, one question I have for you, 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 you hinted at, you know, the thoracic outlet increased prevalence and, you know, and talking about, you know, effectively an anterior dislocation in a thrower, um, you know, where does this go from here? You know, we, we've seen such dramatic uh, changes to the, you know, I guess the, the level of trauma that we can induce to a throwing shoulder, just as arm speeds and more aggressive training programs and things like that have, have come into place is, do you see another place where this can adapt? I mean, are we going to start to see shoulder replacements in 38 year olds and things like that? What's the, what's the next step? Because we're, we're obviously demonstrating an ability as a baseball society to blow out structures. We didn't previously think we could blow out. Right. But the, uh... You know, just to be clear, the blowouts are pretty uncommon. Mm -hmm. It's usually, you know, strain stress related uh, rather than sort of destructive stuff. Um, what's amazing in the shoulder is how confusing the MRI can be rather than helpful. And, um, you know, you've definitely got to put it in context as you're running through all this stuff. Obviously, you know, if you've got thoracic outlet, an MRI is not going to help you at all in terms of the primary diagnosis, and it may lead you down a path, labral, whatever, that confuses you. Mm -hmm. um, and we've see, both seen that happen multiple times. So it really requires a lot of thought. It really requires a lot of patience. You've got to listen to these athletes. In terms of where we're going, I don't see athletes' shoulders getting like, trashed i just mm -hmm. i have i mean in football that's a wholly different uh, you know mm -hmm. we're only talking about baseball right eric yeah for sure yeah because football forget about it you know it's uh it's horrific what happens to their shoulders but in baseball i haven't seen the you know the 35 year olds looking horrible uh mm -hmm. in general you know they may have a little thinning of the cartilage um they definitely you know can have significant cuff pathology that you know they've adapted to and you know the, uh, hopefully they can live with it as a as a citizen and not a baseball player because though by the time you're starting to thick think of fixing those rotator cuff tears in that population usually the tendon is incredibly thin you know, we're talking about the supraspinatus usually, the the uh, the muscle is atrophied. So you rarely get a robust repair of those, a very satisfying repair. Interesting. And I know we've talked about it a little in the past, and we had Dr. Anthony Romeo on a, on a previous podcast, you know, speaking with respect to the lat. I'm curious, you know, diagnostically, you know, we're, we're certainly seeing more of these, particularly as, as arm speed has has increased. We know, you know, professional pitchers, you know, 200% higher lat recruitment during acceleration than amateur players. Are you starting to see these more often in, in younger populations as a, as a true differential diagnosis, or is this still really relegated to, you know, professional players that you consult with? 
No, no, no. I'm de- I, I don't see it in the high school athlete, but in the big, strong college athletes, mm-hmm. we definitely see it. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, you know, this, if we were really sticking to anterior shoulder pain, we'd have to almost exclude the lat because it's posterior, you know, the, the mm-hmm. pain is posterior, not anterior. And, uh, you know, the MRI can be again, I, I'm not negative on MRI, incredibly confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the treatment, I mean, I, I've found no role for uh, any kind of operative treatment, unlike Tony, who's had, I think, a fair bit of success, Tony Romeo, mm-hmm. a fair bit of success with that. I, you know, I just haven't gone there and it's all, it's always worked out non-operatively. That's good to know. Um, so, you know, as we talk about, you know, the anterior shoulder pain, we, we started with the biceps and maybe, you know, we kind of go there first is, you know, I, I was fortunate. I saw the, the first uh, subpectoral biceps tendinitis in major league history. It was Kurt Schilling back in 2008, 2009. Um, and it was kind of the start of when the tenodesis started making more of an appearance in baseball. It was a, you know, kind of a, a landmark study that showed good outcomes and, you know, failed slap repairs and general population folks. So we started to see more of the tenodesis cases being introduced with throwers as maybe like this, 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 you know, cure all where, where do you stand on the tenodesis maybe 10 years ago versus now, D- does it have a role in, in throwers or where's your head at? Well, you know, like I was saying, if you can document, and usually that means a diagnostic injection done under ultrasound by a, you know, qualified, I use a radiologist, an ultrasonographer radiologist to do it and really get the needle in that groove, flood the groove with, you know, usually using lidocaine just as the diagnostic part. And if you can repeat your physical examination maneuvers after that, and the pain is gone, then I'm, I, I'm, if I suspected it before, based on location of pain, physical exam, history, then I'm pretty sold. Mm-hmm. And if, if there's no other reason that you can, you know, you're always looking with biceps for non-operative reasons. And what are the non-operative reasons? Obviously, the usual GERD, scapular weakness, all that stuff. Scapular weakness is huge because posture makes a huge difference for the biceps uh, and how it interacts with the rest of the shoulders. So if there's any weakness in that whole chain, we'll hit that really hard for three months of non-operative therapy before we even consider any kind of surgery. If we are going to do surgery, then we do do, I do do a subpectoral tenodesis. And the few that I've done have worked out, have worked out nicely. Um, But, you know, it's, you have to have a rigorous kind of algorithm to get to that operative point. We've, we've seen, I've probably seen a dozen tenodesis maybe over the last five or six years in throwers. And I'm curious, what are the safeguards that you think we need to be mindful of? I mean, are we, are we seeing like a capsular tightening procedure in place to make up for the lack of maybe anterior stability that we would get from the biceps tendon, or is it just, Hey, we need to rehab these folks and get their cuff bull strong, you know, to, to make up for that lack of anterior stability it would provide. Yeah, no, I think it's just scapular and cuff strength. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, 
I, I haven't seen really those kind of problems with, you know, drifting of the humerus because of the, the biceps. But, you know, I mean, how many have I done in, in elite throwing athletes? Five or six. So yeah. it's not a lot. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky one. Where do you stand on the biceps transfer? I've only seen a few that's it's a little bit newer. Um, I'm not sure they're even doing them that much. Um, you know, well, there's only one person I know that yeah. does it, but yeah. uh, I, I mean, I don't get it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't get it at all. Like, why would you want to change the the angle of the biceps? I, I, I don't get it at all. So, so you're not you're not ready to no. throw your hat in the ring on it as the future. <laughs> no, 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 no. And it's potentially a lot more invasive uh, because you have to blow up that what's called subdeltoid space with a lot of water to work in there, mm-hmm. and the water can extravasate, and it's it's much more invasive. Do you see a role for uh, like biologics in the, in the context of some of these these chronics, you know, degenerative conditions of the biceps tendon? So that's a really good question. Um, you know, uh, the way I look at biologics is, is sure, it can be a, uh, a biologic anti-inflammatory, but it's not a super powerful anti-inflammatory. It's mm-hmm. got, a, you know, other kind of complex interactions. So I, I haven't had a lot of luck with uh, PRP or other stem cells around tendons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the issue is, do you inject? cortisone around a biceps and then have it rupture, <laughs> which is not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're a little between a rock and a hard place. I mean, there's nothing wrong with trying a PRP injection in the groove mm-hmm. uh, as a biologic anti-inflammatory, but I haven't seen it be very successful. Interesting. Um, I'm, I'm going to return to the subscapularis discussion. Um, we've had some, some good conversations on this and I've actually, I learned a ton from you. These are stubborn injuries. Um, they almost invariably in my experience present in some of those athletes who, you know, they have like a hundred degrees of external rotation. They're just doing whatever they possibly can to get their arm back. Um, there was a good study that I think that showed that less than 106 degrees of, of shoulder ER predicts 85% of subscap injuries. I, I'm more curious on the clinical side of things. What makes them, you know, so hard to deal with, whether it's diagnostically treatment wise, or they seem to have a, just a ton of setbacks. Um, where, where do you, where do you stand on all that? Well, I, I think that's kind of pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, people, you know, neglect the subscap all the time because it's, you know, much more rarely injured mm-hmm. discreetly than the rest of the cuff. Mm-hmm. They forget that the subscap muscle is the biggest muscle, mm-hmm. you know, of the cuff group. Mm-hmm. And and uh, under the most tension. So like when we do open procedures, let's say, as you mentioned before, our shoulder replacement, and we have to cut through the subscap, if you don't tag it, it retracts all the way into the chest right wow. away. Yeah. I mean, the, the tension is really, really high. The, the, the forces across the subscap are unbelievably high. Like, you know, these players we were talking about before, in terms of isolated supraspinatus tears and their ability to compensate, if they then get a subscap tear, let's say they fall or something, mm-hmm. and they get a, a significant destabilizing subscap tear, 
they lose, they go backwards so hard, their shoulder just doesn't work anymore. So I look at the subscap as the big sister of the cuff group. And when it gets injured, the forces that go across it are so high that it, it just takes a long time, even with an injury that doesn't look bad, to recover. Um, you know, luckily, it's interesting. We see... We don't see a lot of subscap tendon avulsions in baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, we you probably are aware of this. We see this mm-hmm. in tennis players. Yeah. And I'm I'm not quite sure why, but mm-hmm. you know, I've operated on four, three women and one man mm-hmm. with a near complete avulsion of their subscap in, in the you know professional tennis ranks. That's incredible. I think the the thing that I've always been curious about is it's hard, probably hard to really differentiate as it's obviously working as an, as an agonist with the, the lats and, you know, other powerful internal rotators of the shoulder. But I think people overlook the, the important Arthur kinematic role it plays is all those powerful internal rotators are attaching more distally on the humerus to drive aggressive adduction and internal rotation. The subscap's really just trying to hold that humeral head back as best as it can. So, I, I, do you think it's just a sheer, you know, cross-sectional area thing where you know we have all these cuff tendons? The majority of it is coming from subscap, and it, it's having to compete with some very, very big musculature that are working during internal rotation and, and adduction. I agree. I think that's a, a great summary. I think that's a great summary. So, I guess my question is. Do you have standard timelines, you know, depending on obviously injury severity and, and things like that with subscap? I, I feel like everyone I've seen that's had setbacks with these has been really rushed. You know, maybe it's because they were misdiagnosed as as something else and you know they start playing catch at a week and a half. But I feel like I've seen so many um, you know, failed rehab attempts with these that ultimately do well because they had to learn their lesson along the way. Do you have timelines that you adhere to with these? Yeah. So like like we were saying, most of these in baseball throwers are muscle tendon junction injuries rather than tendon bone injuries. Mm-hmm. So this problem starts right at the beginning because the radiologist is tending to look at the uh, tendon bone interface mm-hmm. and barely looking at the muscle tendon interface where the injury really is. Mm-hmm. And so it gets underestimated, underdiagnosed. Uh, and so I mean, I think they need six weeks of non-throwing kind of rehab and then a six-week program of return to throwing. And if they obviously have setbacks, so that's a three-month package. But if they have setbacks, it can easily be six months. So my experience is like yours. People are not patient enough. They don't realize this. You know, they're they're underwhelmed by the severity of the MRI because there's no quote unquote tear of the tendon from the bone mm-hmm. and they, um, you know, whatever. Well, they rush um, them along. Do you do a different MRI approach when you suspect subscap injury? Um, you know, no, no, okay, no, it's the same thing. No. It's just, just dig deeper. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you know, we, we see like citizens who get MRIs of their shoulder and nobody looks at the axial images. You know, they, they just look at the coronal images and okay. they forget to look. So the, the axial images are obviously the crucial images for the subscap. That's good to know. And, and now we, we had some good conversations on a, on a particular athlete. Um, and you, you talked about anytime you see a subscapularis injury in a thrower, you have to dig deeper 
and start to discuss the capsule. Could you maybe uh, elaborate on that a little bit more for our listeners? Sure. I, I mean, you know, capsular injuries can range tremendously in severity, uh, but the capsule and the subscap work together, you know, in, as you said before, Eric, uh, supporting that humeral head and not letting it drift anteriorly when they get up in abduction external rotation. So when you do see a sub- significant subscap injury, you know you usually have some kind of capsular injury associated with it, and it can be very hard to differentiate, and it may not be differentiable because you have they're they're intimate. You know anyone who's operated on the shoulder knows that they are intimate with each other. The fibers, the muscle fibers, the subscap insert into the capsule, the tendon and fibers insert into the capsule. So they're, they're almost like a brother and sister. And, um, you know, measuring the severity of the sub, excuse me, the capsular injury independently is really hard to do. So um, I guess my, my question is big picture. You know, we, we certainly have acute, capsular injuries, which are probably going to fall in line with some of the, the subscapularis discussion. But we also have these, these chronic, you know, shoulders that just get looser and looser and looser over the course of time. Um, are, are those harder diagnoses for you? Is, is it a feel thing when they, when they walk into the clinic or does the kind of the component of, of chronicity maybe speak to it on a level that, that gives it right away to you? No, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think when you're talking about that, 90% of the time you're talking about some kind of age related, mm-hmm. you know, that age has some, you know, you don't see those kind of things. The chronic capsular injuries generally in younger throwers, mm-hmm. you start to see it in the older throwers, let's say 30 and above, uh, who, you know, I, you know, as we all know, unfortunately, and as you, you get older, Eric, you'll see it yourself. <laughs> well, one of the first things that you, you notice you start to lose is elasticity of your tissues. And, you know, you just look at an older person's skin, right. And that sagging skin, that's what that is. And, and when that happens to the capsule, that means it can't stretch and recover during those high force moments and it often stretches and never recovers and then stretches and never recovers. And then eventually you can have a problem. How you recognize that is, uh, you know, I I can't say I have the answer to how Mm -hmm. to recognize that, but you have to suspect that Mm -hmm. as, as if you don't see like a capsular tear. And so you, whether it's an acute, you know, uh, you know, kind of a surgical intervention for, for a younger pitcher. Like I don't, Julio Rios is a, is a player in major league baseball who had one in his early twenties. Um, you know, and then you obviously see more veteran pitchers who, who have this, you know, after a more extended period of time where there's, you know, chronic overstretching, so to speak, these are always long challenging rehab scenarios. And I think it's particularly the case when they're paired with an element of cuff pathology or some label involvement or, you know, whatever else you might find in there. You know, what is it that makes these such long, you know, challenging rehab scenarios? Well, I think you just hit on the head. They're combined with other pathology. I mean, you almost never see this, you know, that kind of capsular, chronic capsular problem and a normal looking cuff. 
because, you know, this is the Dr. Job thing that it used to talk about all the time. You get that chronic anterior drift and then the cuff, you know, impinges internally impinges on the back of the glenoid and you start to fray the cuff and ultimately you can tear a, a pretty big hole in it. And so you've got a weak shoulder with poor structural support. So you got your work as a therapist, you really got your work cut out for you. That makes sense. Is this just like an active passive restraint play where, you know, some of the loss of elasticity in the capsule may, you know, be almost a, an adaptation that's secondary to a, a slowly failing rotator cuff where, you know, we, we all well, see these over, older, older throwers that have, you know, super scapular cysts, you know, external rotation weakness, things like that. Does that predispose them to maybe a little bit more of this? Huh, that's interesting. You know, that, that's been the mystery, one of the great mysteries for my whole career. What's the natural history of exactly that problem? You know, uh, nerve related, super scapular nerve related external rotation weakness. And how does that affect a thrower, you know, in, you know, from 28 to 34? And I don't have the answer. I don't see those people showing up regularly in the office, the ones with this capsular cuff thing, having that as the background music. So I don't know the answer to that, you know, but I would say back to your previous comment, you always have to be careful. Is it the chicken or the egg? In other words, is the capsular laxity that develops as a result of the stretching, allowing this internal impingement to occur and beat the crap out of the cuff? Or as you said, is the cuff weakening, allowing, putting too much strain on the yeah. capsule? And nobody knows the answer to that. But. Yeah, absolutely. And on the return to throwing program with these, these capsule folks, it's it almost, I don't know if this is the right word, but they, they have to idle it for so long. I, you know, there's a Stuart McGill is one of the world's premier spine biomechanists. And he talks about, you know, people with chronic low back pain, you, you gradually expand their move, their pain-free movement repertoire. He calls it tickling the dragon's tail. And I use that line all the time with guys who are coming back from these because you can easily set yourself back if you go out and you, you get too aggressive one time, you know, you really just have to baby it and be very consistent with your throwing, but not push the volume intensity, you know, distance too fast. Has that been your experience as well? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like the real ones that you're treating non-operatively are six month rehab. It's mm-hmm. not six weeks. It's not 12 weeks. In my experience, it's a six month rehab and you got to go slow. Just as you said, that's awesome. I'm, I'm curious, one final question for you. And this is, this has been awesome. I'm always intrigued at, uh, you know, we all have those moments where we stare off into blackness, wondering about things at, at three in the morning. What are the, what are the topics that excite you the most? You know, what is it that the next five to 10 years of, of sports medicine, you know, what, what's most intriguing to you? Is it, is it the nature of biologics and how they can help us better imaging, you know, getting better at diagnosing thoracic outlet? What excites you these days? Yeah. I, I, you know, Thoracic outlet is so confusing mm-hmm. diagnostically, and I feel horrible when I, you know, look at a, a kid or a player and it's uh, father or coach, and I say, I think that's all wrong, what you've been told. You definitely don't need surgery. I think you have this thing called thoracic outlet. And they go, what? <laughs> well, how do we prove it? And then I go, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I would say number one on my list, 
is of that kind of topic is to develop a concrete way that we can diagnose thoracic outlet and reassure and you know and divide then the athlete into the non-operative and operative group who's going to do well with rehab who's going to basically has such anatomic constraints that they won't be able to overcome it with rehab and the you know sur- uh, surgery so i would say that's my number number one on my list that's a very important one and, and something unfortunately that's becoming much more prevalent whether it's because of the diagnostic aspect and the awareness, or if it's because we're actually seeing more and more athletes that are in, in rougher shape at much younger levels. Exactly. Well, I appreciate you so much um, for folks listening. I, 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 you know, I'll vouch for the wonderful care that Dr. Alchek and his, his uh, peers and disciples have, have offered at HSS both in, in Florida um, as well as in, in New York. Um, they've been absolutely wonderful to deal with on a lot of our second opinions and athletes that we sent out for them. And I had my own knee done uh, at HSS West Palm last year with great results. So I'm a big advocate of yours, both as a, as a professional and as a patient. So thank oh, you great, very much well, for taking the time. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. Have a good Enjoy day. Enjoy that good Florida weather. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you again. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.